Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today, we're going to be interviewing Jerry W. We're up to episode 90, so we're getting up there. And I'm very happy to have Jerry here. How are you doing this morning, sir? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. So let's dive in, get this started. Tell me about your childhood. Oh, it wasn't great. (laughs) (laughs) That was was quick. Oh, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. Tell us a little more about it. Start, Start when you were young. Okay. Um, you know, um, my mom abandoned me and my little brother. Um, it's one of my first memories. I think I was like about five. Uh, we were alone for three or four days and finally one of the neighbors came and, uh, was like, you know, what's going on? Um, basically I was like, I don't know where my mom is and, uh, the state took custody of us. So then, um, I bounced around foster care a little bit, you know, and that wasn't great, but uh, luckily I have a lot of family who are very loving, and uh, they took me and my brother in. Uh, eventually, my dad got, or my, not my dad, uh, my brother's dad got his shit together and took custody of him. But uh, who took never really, you in? They never really. You said family took you in. Who took them? Who took you in? Was there anyone specific? Yeah, my aunt and uncle. Um, <clears throat> they're great. They're in my lives. They're actually um, some really decent people. You know, they loved me when you know, nobody else would, you know, they loved me when they didn't have to, they, they, uh, they, they opened their home to me and it was, it was pretty incredible of them. And I'm very thankful for that. That's great. So you said so, your brother's dad eventually got his shit together and took him. Yep. So my brother, he's a audio engineer in Seattle. Um, he's doing well. Uh, his dad, you know, stepped up and did the right thing and raised him all the way through as a single dad. Um, but I was kind of the middle child with um, a family that I kind of felt like they weren't mine. And so I had like this chip on my shoulder for a long time. And, uh, you know, I rebelled. I, you know, smoked cigarettes as a child. I stole pot from my parents. Um, you know, just things that uh, that led to uh, a life of drugs and crime. You know, eventually um, they were pushed to the limit and they had to um, kick me out of their house. Uh, I brought the police there way too many times at 12, 11. So, you know, they finally sent me to my grandparents and my grandparents owned a restaurant. So they were never home and it allowed me uh, basically carte blanche so I could do whatever I wanted. Um, They had enough. They would just throw money at me. They're like, here's, you know, hundred bucks, you know, go to the arcade and I would buy drugs. And, you know, eventually that led me to spending time with my mother again. And that was just bad news bears. Um, You know, she was into meth and. She had no problem giving her 13-year-old son meth. So, you know, we were doing meth together, kind of. And it, it just, you know, snowballed into, like, this um, this just disrespect for life and disrespect for people. And I thought that everybody owed me something. And I thought that um, the people who didn't want me around, um, I could take what I wanted from them. So like I stole from family that, you know, took care of me. I stole from my grandparents. Uh, I stole ha- from houses that weren't mine. You know, I'd break into homes um, and just basically lived a life of crime all the way through my teens until it, you know, finally landed me in some hot water, you know, with the so police. The first, first hard drugs you did was, so did you go straight to meth or did you experiment with other stuff before that? Um, so I was smoking pot Um at a very young age, probably 11, 12 years old. So. Yeah. So you're doing it. What age did you do it with your mom until how was it? Let me ask you this question. How was it getting high with your mom? Was it weird? 
oh dude so the first time she gave me meth um i was in my bedroom with my friends and we were smoking pot and she came in my room and just dumped a pile of the stuff on my cd case and she's like here guys have fun and i'm going out you know and i had two really young sisters at the time i think they were like one and two and she's like watch the kids i'll be back going to get cigarettes type of deal you know and she, you? Uh, i think i was like 13 13 when this all happened yeah so she she would take off for days at a time leave me with you know a bunch of meth and these two young girls to you know basically look after and um, she would pay my friends math to watch the kids. And so, yeah, that went on for a few years. It was just chaos, yeah. it was fighting. There was a lot of um, moving around, getting kicked out of houses. Um, sounds, you know, like was, sounds like meth was her way of like babysitting, kind of like, here you go. This will keep you busy while I'm gone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was miserable. I mean, it was, it was horrific looking back at it now that, that people live that way. And, I try not to be too judgmental when I see that, but at the same time, it's kind of hard not to be like, dude, that's like legit abuse, you know? So. So how was your life in school? Uh, it was rough. Um, so there was a lot of, like I said, I had this chip on my shoulder. So I thought, you know, everybody was my enemy, you know? And so I looked for enemies in people. When I looked at somebody, I looked for the, the negatives. And I did that for a long, long time. I mean, I did that way up into my late thirties. And so having that type of attitude, when you meet somebody to think that they're trying to hurt you in some way, or that they're not your friend, it makes it really hard for anybody to like break through. And I had some really good teachers that would try to like take me in, um, do special things with me outside of school. Um, my family worked in the school district. So it was like, it, it, it was a it should have been a good like supporting loving environment but because I had this hate in my heart you know it just it made it so impossible um not impossible but really difficult for me to like find some type of education in the school system that's rough it's rough did you graduate high school I did not no um I think I dropped out um, officially uh, my freshman year of high school, but the last grade I completed was six um, until later when I got my GD, went to college. But um, yeah, I, sixth grade, man, I was done. I barely went in seventh grade. Uh, by the time I was a freshman in high school, they just kind of passed me along through seventh and eighth grade. But by the time I was a freshman in high school, I would show up to the school just to smoke cigarettes and hang out with my friends. And then when they go, would go into class, I would, you know, fuck off for a couple hours and then lunch would happen and then I'd show up smoke cigarettes again and I did that for about a year before I finally just abandoned school altogether and just kind of did drugs and hung out your family was okay with you dropping out my, my at that time I lived with my mom so she was um not really interested in what I was doing other than uh, you know taking care of those two little girls we had at the house so how old were you when you finally moved back in with your mom uh, I believe I was about uh, right before I turned 13. So I was about 12 at the end of, at the end of my 12th uh, year. So she came back into your life. Yeah. Um, so when I had been kicked out of my aunt and uncles, I moved in with my grandparents. And when I did that, um, so they had, you know, money, they owned this restaurant and it was very successful. So she was kind of mooching off of them. And 
So when she saw that I was living there, she was like going to take advantage of that by using me as kind of a crutch to her mom uh, to get, you know, kind of extort, not extort, that's the wrong word, kind of, yeah, I guess extort. Well, I have this kid and I need money for this. So she would, you know, use that as like a yeah. born or heart type of deal. She was using you for income, kind of. Yeah, yeah, uh, welfare. Uh, my dad was paying child support at that time. So yeah, she was using that as a source of income, absolutely. Did your mom ever graduate high school, do you know? No, she did not. She doesn't even have her GED. Well, you at least changed that pattern and got yours. I've noticed that through a lot of my interviews that people kind of replicate the way their parents live in a way like certain things that didn't happen. Like she didn't graduate high school. You didn't graduate high school. She had a drug addiction. Obviously, you eventually did, um, which is based off of her giving you meth. Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty rough. So pretty much your mom is the one that got you hooked. Yeah. Yeah, she definitely got me started on hard drugs for sure. She just kept feeding them to you to babysit. That's a that's a shitty story. It, it's not great, man. But, uh, you know, it led to some worse things, you know. Um, me being abused led to, you know, me abusing other people, you know, whether it was um, uh, the girlfriends I had at a young age um getting them them hooked on drugs uh bringing drugs around my friends um which led to me you know starting to sell meth so um when i was 16 my mom's boyfriend was a meth dealer and um he gave me you know uh i think it was like an eight ball or something at the time which uh i broke down into smaller bags and was selling it to my friends at you know 16 years old and the police saw it happening you know because it was a very small town and they just rolled up on me and were like, hey, dude, what's in your pockets? And so they found the meth and um, I went to my first rehab. At what age? 16? 16. So I got a felony and the judge basically um, looked, took one look at me and how skinny and fucked up on drugs I was because uh, I had court like the next day and the next morning. And he's like, "Uh, no, he's like, I want that kid in rehab today. Like he was mad. Like he was angry, you know, not at me, but at the the failure, <clears throat> the failure of the system, you know. So here's this kid who's selling drugs, fucked up on drugs. And so he's like, get him day. He's like, I want him in a bed. So they shipped me off to, to rehab. And uh, I went to the rehab in Seattle. Um, it was not great. <laughs> I was great, well, you had a great judge. I mean, that's yeah. one thing that. I've been watching a lot about as far as documentaries and reading about is um, a judge that'll treat this more like a medical issue, I guess you could say, versus a criminal issue where it's, okay, let's get this sick person better versus let's get this bad person in jail. Yeah. And so I'm from a small town where everybody knows everybody, you know, it's, it's about 10, 15,000 people. And my, like I said, my family's in the school district, my family owned businesses, like we're part of the community there. And my mom was the black sheep, but everybody knew who we were. Our name is known uh, more so now than ever. Uh, but back then, even we were known as a, as a well-to-do family. So my uncle Mike's a school teacher. My grandfather was a principal, like, um, you know, we're just, well known in that town so the judge knew of my family and gave me break after break after break that wasn't the first time he he was looking out for me um 
you know, throughout my 20s, early 20s, he again and again and again gave me chance after chance after chance. And um, it was, uh, you know, his name's Judge, Judge Godfrey. I don't know if he's still around, but if he is, man, that dude, man, I, I got to give props to that guy. He, he has a tough job. He has a really tough job. So, so yeah, um, got out of treatment, um, right back to my mom's house. Wait, when real I got quick, you, real quick, before you left treatment, you said that place wasn't good, right? What, what, would, what was the issue with the place or issues? Right place for me. Um, it was more of like, um, it was like a, the island of misfit children kind of thing, you know? Okay. So there was... Uh, 60 kids in this place and they're all broken you know what i mean gang members you know uh uh drug addicts uh kids who are none of the, none of us want to be there we're all forced to be there kind of thing does that make sense yeah uh, most don't have good homes uh, i think maybe two or three kids actually had parents in their lives who are you know well-to-do's this place was i mean it was bad it was violent it was uh, people breaking out getting cigarettes and and, and pot. And it, it was a lot. It was, it was chaos, you know, from the small town I'm from to Seattle drug treatment, it was a shell shock. It was something I wasn't used to seeing. Where are you from originally? Uh, Aberdeen, Washington. Okay. Isn't that where uh, Kurt Cobain grew up, right? Yeah. Yeah. It a, is. Real, a well-known addict. Yeah. My mom went to school with them, but uh you know, it's just the town is very depressed. It used to be logging. It used to be fishing. It used to have industry. And now it's it, all that's gone. You know, um, my family that still works in the school district, they do that. Um, my family used to own my aunt and uncle. They used to own a really decent restaurant and bar. They now have to work for the prison and the medical system because, you know, the, the bar scene just died and got filled with, you know, drugs and and to, the people who used to stop in for their you know um happy hour drinks from the mills in the area those mills are gone so they don't stop in there no more you know so it, it their business died it's a shame it is um so yeah i left treatment right back to my mom's house more dope uh Basically, so your, I, your mom had no concern for the fact that you just got out of treatment. Uh, my mom has no concern for anything uh, or anyone. Um, I don't believe that she uh, gives a lot of thought about tomorrow, let alone next week. So um, her her whole life is immediate, instant gratification. So that's how she kind of lives her life. Um, she has some mental illness, um, and I just. Uh, today I'm actually, she's not in my life and she won't be ever again. So, um, so yeah. Um, so kind of just milled around from house to house for a while, um, skirted the system, got off probation. Uh, and at 18, I was arrested for the first time with a, a gun. I was still on drugs again and, um, got arrested with a gun, uh, doing that gangster stuff. And they put me in jail. Uh, same judge. He's like, I don't like teenagers having pistols. And I was like, okay, you know, and he's like, I'm not going to send you to prison. But he goes, you're going to do some time in my county jail. And I'm like, all right. So I sat in county jail for a couple of days. And uh, I, get in, I get a call in, over the speaker. And they were like, 
they never do that. And so they're like, you have to call this number. So I call this number. And my girlfriend at the time tells me she's pregnant. So 18 years old, I'm a drug addict with a felony and I have a baby on the way. And so um, I did the opposite of what I should have done, which was I got out. Uh, my family helped me out with a job uh, as a painter um, that lasted about a month before I got high again. And I was off and running, getting high, you know, with the pregnant girlfriend who's working a job, you know, trying to make things uh, family like, you know, I got out, she had her own place. So I lived with her and uh, basically just did drugs until she kicked me out. You know, um, she had the baby and uh, I was kicked out and living on my own, just doing drugs and uh, ended up back in jail. So back in jail again same judge he's like dude he's like you're like a bad penny you're just always going to turn up he's like here's what i'm going to do he's like i'm gonna let you out too he goes but i have a feeling you'll be back so he let me out i ended up stealing a car and got in trouble for that car so now i'm doing uh basically a year in the county jail um he didn't want to send me to prison he said i still believe in you i still believe you have hope i don't think you're gonna um turn it around today he said but maybe after a year in jail <laughs> you'll figure it out <laughs> so he uh, gave me a year in the county I got out of county jail and uh, I was 21 at this time so I didn't know what to do I met some people in jail um, who wanted to turn their lives around and I kind of was seeing like a, a pattern of the same people in the jail because I've been twice now and uh, a guy gave me a phone number for a job in Alaska so, um, <clears throat> I called the number as soon as I got out and the lady was like, oh yeah, I know him, you know, uh, yeah, come on down. You can pass a piss test. We'll send you to Alaska. So I go to Seattle, pass the piss test. They send me to a boat in Dutch Harbor, Alaska. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that show, Deadliest Catch. I believe I have, uh, okay. a long time ago. I don't remember it though, to tell you the truth. So it's one of the most dangerous jobs there are. Um, <clears throat> they're on crab boats. I was on a, uh, a dragnet boat, um, but it's in the Bering Sea, man. It's nasty. So we're out there fishing and I'm seasick and I don't really like fish that much. Uh, and I didn't really like being around a bunch of guys on a boat. So, so yeah. I finished contract made a couple you know 15,000 bucks came home and I still hadn't addressed any of my drug issues um I thought oh I just won't use drugs I'll be fine um and and that would work today because I've changed so much about myself and how I think um I've developed uh coping skills that I don't believe they teach in, in drug treatments because you have to look at people like they're your friends. You can't look at everybody like, like your enemy. You know, you have to drop a lot of the um, beliefs and core values that you have, and you have to adopt core values that you think are going to help you. Um, but anyway, so yeah, uh, I, I made it like two years without using drugs. Um, uh, then I moved uh, in with this girl and started drinking really heavily. Um, and it was kind of a domestic situation. Um, I don't want to point to one person or the other, but it was both of us were being violent with each other. Um, it was pretty bad, you know, uh, slamming doors. She had a young child. Uh, my daughter was visiting on weekends. 
So it was like um, putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, you know? Um, I wasn't using drugs, but I was still, you know, um, a hate-filled person. You know, I didn't have my attitude was was bad, you know? So bounced around from job to job kind of thing, could never hold a job. And then um, broke up with her, met somebody else, got married. Uh, she was out of a toxic relationship, got her kid taken away. She was just a, a mess, you know? And um, I wasn't much better. So I ended up getting hurt at work and they introduced me to Oxycontin. So uh, I fell off this ladder, got uh, a little surgery and the doctor prescribed me a little Vicodin and that was fine. And then when I went to my regular, I uh, got off my surgeon, I went to like a pain management clinic type, type deal and they, they prescribed me Oxycontin, Oxycontin every month for like 10 months. And so I had so much oxys that I was selling them because it was a lot of money. And then I started using them and then I started selling half. And then I started selling just a couple for gas money. And then I started using all my pills plus buying more pills. And that was decent for eight months. At least it held me um, in, in check by having a prescription from crime element. That's what I'm talking about. So I wasn't committing crimes in order to support my habit. I was getting them from a doctor. <clears throat> this this part of the story is very very common i've heard this from many people like they're like oh yeah that's how i started using heroin um you know you you go see a doctor for an ailment they over prescribe you medication and then you're hooked on opiates and that is not one bitch you ever want to fuck with like she's nasty like she doesn't give two fucks about you and you have to have her you know like it is uh like not a want, not a need. It is a necessity. It's like water. You have to have it. You cannot survive without it. So that started. And that was the beginning of seven years of just hell for me. Um, uh, you, when you started heroin, were you still selling pills for income? How did you support your habit? So no. Um, one day I went to see my doctor and they just cold turkey me they go here's 10 vicodin good luck like you're done like it's been 10 months your arm should be healed so i'm like okay so then um i started i kept buying pills but they're so expensive i uh, had to do something else so uh somebody that was very close to me introduced me to heroin and um my wife at the time fought it she's like we're not doing that shit pills is one thing but uh you know I convinced her that it was the, the right move. And so we started using heroin and immediately I re resorted back to what I did when I was a teenager and uh, in my early twenties, which was selling to support my habit. So I started selling dope and I got robbed a few times. Uh, I robbed a few people and it was kind of a bad element. So my mom and sisters and grandmother had moved to Oregon. Um, so I moved to Oregon to have a place to stay because I was on the streets. And <clears throat> when I got here, I immediately got introduced to people using heroin, like within a couple of days. Wait, so, before, you, before you did that, were you living homeless on the streets for a while? Yeah, I was kind of surfing like couches, you know, staying with girls um, for a place, you know, doing a little housework here and there and, you know, being their boyfriend for a place to stay kind of deal. So. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, 
so then I started selling dope, man. And I, in Oregon, it's not as violent as like Washington was. Um, it's kind of a more laid back vibe here. Um, so I was able to be really successful at it because I have a demeanor that is <clears throat> like stoic. Uh, people don't really fuck with me. They, they, they take one look at me. I'm a good guy, you know, tattoos. They, they see somebody who they don't want a problem with, you know? So I was easily able to manipulate uh, the people here and the people I surrounded myself with into thinking that I was some big Billy badass from, you know, Washington that wasn't to be fucked with. So I sold dope here and and got semi-successful at it. I was a low mid-level dealer. So I sold to other dealers and um, a lot of users, but uh, I managed to, you know, buy cars. I managed to uh, support myself with an apartment. Um, You know, I bought nice clothes. Uh, You know, I had no problems throwing money around at the casinos, things like that. And I did that for like four years. Um, just kind of, you know, eat through life that way. You know, it wasn't much of a life to live when you're scared in your house. You can't leave because the police, anytime you leave the house, the police are watching you and you're being followed. And it's not paranoia when, you know, it's happening. You know, this was legit happening. All the detectives knew who I was. Um, they would knock on my doors. Sometimes people would overdose in like the parking lot where I lived. And they were like, dude what the fuck? Like, we've got a dead body out here. I'm like, I don't know him. Like, get a warrant, fucking slam the door in their face. And so <clears throat> I would um, get pulled over and detained by the task force units, like the street crimes people. And they were like, can we search your car? I'm like, no, get a warrant. And they would just hold me for hours. And they'd be like, all right, you can go, you know, just to, just trying to like, Hey man, slow the fuck down. Like you're doing too much. Like we know. And um, <clears throat> this went on for a while about four years. And then, um, I got, I got raided. So they finally got themselves a warrant. Somebody, you know, did a buy on me and turned me in and, um, they came in the house. Well, the way Oregon is with drug crimes back then, basically they, I was out before they were done searching my house. I was booked into the jail and released before they were done searching my house. So I had to like wait outside while the police are, you know, going through my shit. And, um, they finish and I don't even slow down a bit. I just call my dealer, boom, get another couple of couple ounces or whatever and, and start selling again. Uh, this goes on for a few more months. While I've got pending charges, <clears throat> I go on the run and they finally pick me up, <clears throat> put me in jail. And after 30 days, there's so many people's in the jails, they they release me again. Uh, I wish they never would have released me because I just kicked heroin for the first time ever, you know, for long enough. And, um, methadone, I was on a methadone program. I kind of washed over that. Um, so I'll back up a little bit. So my wife had gotten pregnant with some twin boys and eventually during, she was like seven months along, they, they died. So she was in the methadone program because of that. Um, they put her on methadone and, uh, when, when the boys died, uh, I got on the methadone program. Now the methadone program, in my opinion, is one of the worst programs there are. Uh, they call it crime reduction treatment. Um, because if you're high on methadone, you're not committing crimes to get your heroin, which makes sense in theory, but all you're doing is prolonging the inevitable. 
in my experience in the methadone program, which was a little over two years, everybody in that program is basically just surviving day to day. So they still have to have their bitch. They still have to go get, you know, their methadone every day. Um, and it's not helpful to somebody who's afraid every day that they're not going to have their methadone. You're in such fear of not having your methadone. You are willing to basically crawl over broken glass to get it because the withdrawals are so intense. Um, I believe there needs to be a system in place where they just basically lock people down for 30 days and let them fucking suffer. Um, like literally lock the door and, and walk away like train spotting because there's no other way that you're going to kick that habit. Uh, methadone success rate, I think is less than a percent. Like those people aren't getting better. I mean, if you had a business that you, you only had a, uh, a rating on, on Google of 1%, you would fail. You wouldn't, you wouldn't succeed. But yet for some reason, these treatment programs are continually funded by the government and they have very, very low success rates. I mean, I think the best success rate, even like the passages of Malibu and all that's like four or 5%. Um, so I have an unfavorable opinion of methadone programs and suboxone programs, but that doesn't mean that we should stop trying. It just, I think we should try something else because that's, I don't, in my opinion, not working. So <clears throat> fast forward again. Uh, so I'm on the run and I end up <clears throat> getting arrested and let back out. When they let me back out after these 30 days, I had the opportunity to get better, but 30 days wasn't enough for me. Um, I call my guy, get some heroin, start selling again, call my favorite dealers. They come over. I'm like, Hey, I know you ain't got no money. I've been, I've been away here. Boom, boom, boom. I put these people on front and, uh, send them out to sell my shit. Um, about a week later, uh, my door gets kicked in again. And these, these police officers aren't doing a regular search. They're mad. They're fucking hottest hornets coming in my house this time. Um, throw everybody on the ground, ripping the house apart, being kind of aggressive, kicking my dogs. I'm like, hey, fucking don't kick my dogs or whatever. Um, one of the officers who I knew very well, Bennett, Sean Bennett, um, you know, I didn't like him then. I thought he was kind of a dick. I, I'd met him many, many times. Uh, he says, you know, Alex is fucking dead. I said, Alex isn't dead. I just talked to her. He goes, no, Alex Bozinski, motherfucker. And I didn't know who that was. I'd never met him. Um, apparently Alex had shot dope for his first time, um, and overdosed and died. And his girlfriend found him, uh, in the bathroom. And that's the end of his story. Um, I didn't know him. I didn't know who he was. I never met him. He was a little bit younger than me. So you didn't sell him with heroin? No, I did not. Um, one of my dealers did. Uh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. So one of my dealers sold him the heroin, and um, they basically ran me through the ringer of a Lynn bias. Uh, it's a negligent homicide with a Lynn bias enhancement. It's a federal crime, and it holds a 20-year sentence. And if you have prior deliveries like I do, it holds a life sentence. So, um, I go to jail under the pretense that they're going to charge me with this limb bias. And I don't, I've never heard of it before. I'm like still playing a Billy badass. I'm like, I want a lawyer. They're like, Oh, you know, you sold drugs to this guy. I'm like, nah, talk to my lawyer. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. 
So sitting in jail, go to court, $2 million bail. I'm like, what the fuck? Um, sitting there, I'm in there with a guy. He's my cellie. He's in there for murder. He's only got $1 million bail. I'm like, that's fucked up. I got, I got more bail than you. Um, and I didn't realize at the time what was actually happening. So spend a little while in court, kind of fight the, the system a little bit. And uh, they, they end up sending me to prison. I did, uh, they sentenced me to 98 months for four counts of delivery. So on these four counts, I got like, I think it was like 15 and 36, uh, something like that. No, when you say delivery, they charge you with delivery. Is that selling? Yeah, four counts okay. of delivery. Um, it was 15 and 34 months. So the way they broke it up was I took a deal out of the feds and to do state time for the 98 months. Um, so I went to prison uh, my first time. Uh, I'd done some like uh, uh, probation violations in the prisons in Washington. But this is my first time doing a long stretch. And uh, during sentencing, the judge said something um, that I won't ever forget. It, it was a federal judge. And she goes, there's no cure for you. She said, the only cure for you is a lengthy prison sentence. She goes, and if you continue to go into this resolution, kicking and screaming, she goes, I'm going to hit you with everything the federal court system has. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but it was enough. It was enough to break me. You know, I don't know if four years would have did it or two years, but I know 98 did it like that fucking broke me. I did not want to spend the rest of my life in prison. So I went to prison and I still had this uh, gang name and I had like my gang ties and I'd been doing that for a while. So when I got to prison, the people from my area knew me, you know, I had a reputation of kind of being a badass. Well, now I'm surrounded by all badasses. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, I went from being a big fish in a small pond to being a small fish in a big pond. And uh, my gang isn't really well liked in Oregon, in most states. So I was kind of tested right away, right away. You know, hey, you know, if you want to sit at this table, you know, you're going to have to hold our standard of conduct, you know, and I was like, okay, I can do that. So that standard of conduct, con uh, conduct is um, violence, is, is aggressive violence. And so I already had my, my persona, my gang name. So I went by that. I didn't go by Jerry. Um, people knew me as a violent person. So I had to, even though I had never been in a fight in Oregon, I just had that, that stoicness about me. People assumed I was a tough guy and I can handle my own. I'm not, I'm not, you know, by any means, uh, small. And, uh, yeah, so I, I proved myself. I proved my worth. I, got it in with a lot of dudes man I, if anybody said question me or or my hood I, I i put them on blast hey man to the cell let's get the ones right now i'm gonna fuck who you're from or or, or what what you bang bro we, we're gonna get it and, and if any of your homies want to come in there they can get it too so that attitude led me to a lot of segregation um two years of segregation almost straight um spending time in sag in and out of uh the whole um, and people were giving me chances and I couldn't figure out why the CEOs were like, Hey man, why don't you get your shit together? We'll get you a good job. So after two years in SAG, that kind of broke me again. And I was like, fuck man, I've only got, you know, six years left. Either I can spend my time in this hole reading books 
which I like reading books. I, you know, I probably read a thousand books, but I, I also like the idea of having a, a life outside of prison. So I'm in love with the idea of being uh, a normie, you know, uh, the white picket fence, the wife, you know, the dogs, you know, that kind of life. I'm, I, I wanted that, you know, we have this delusion in our head as children, you know, watching all these Disney movies, that that's the way things are going to go, you know, that we're going to be, you know, uh, construction workers and have a wife who cooks with the, you know, apron on and come home and kiss her and, and have, you know, dinner with the family around the table, you know, we have that idea of life. So I'm still in love with that. And I <clears throat> decide the only way to get there is to do some type of programming that they have available at the prison. So I get out of the hole and uh, I go to like a dropout unit for gang members. And uh, because of some of the attitudes I had, I got into some problems with the gangs there, you know. Um, so I go to this dropout unit and it's kind of laid back. You know, I can do my own time. There's no, you want to sit at this table. This is our table. That's kind of like, uh, it's kind of watered down. Um, you still get the attitudes, but people aren't pushing that line as hard. So I'm on this unit and <clears throat> I have the opportunity just to do my own thing. So that's what I do. I watch a lot of TV. I, I start losing weight. I work out, lost like 60 pounds. Um, and uh, a job opportunity presented itself for me to uh, go and do some construction. And I have <clears throat> a little bit of experience. So I do this construction job and they tell me after this job's over, it's a really hard job. You guys can have any job in the prison you want. So <clears throat> being an in inmate, you have to like manipulate a little bit, but you can't cross the line too far with the COs because they'll see through that bullshit. You know, they're not dummies, but you have to be able to manipulate your way through and navigate like the certain jobs in order to get the better opportunities. So I wanted a job in laundry because that allowed me basically free reign of the prison. You can walk around. Nobody questions you. They move you to honor housing. So I got the job in laundry and I started working my magic. I started talking to people. I started networking and I got myself into a place with some of the COs to where they trusted what I said. And I, if I said, hey, man, I want to do a program, they were like, well, we don't have that program here, but we'll get you to the prison that has that program. And once you're there, it's up to you. So I knew that that was my shot. I wanted into this program. It was uh, a welding program where they paid for $10,000 worth of school. And it was through the community college. So it was actual credits that would go towards a degree for when I got out. So, and it's one of the few programs, I think maybe the only program they have there in the whole state of Oregon like that. And I, I couldn't see through the, the trees. I couldn't see the forest from the trees at the time, but these COs were actually kind of on my side they were actually working for me they were helping me and I didn't know why at the time but I just knew that I had like uh, an outlet like a, uh, almost a I want I don't want to say a friend but definitely a resource so they shoot me out to a minimum prison I get a great job the first day I get a call they're like hey do you want this job I'm like yeah I'll work so I get to drive like a little electric truck around the prison. I got free reign. I get to, you know, kind of hang out in this, this area. It's like a shop, you know, fixing chainsaws and shining boots and stuff like that. And then it's right next to the welding shop. So I'm over there hanging out all the time. And I just so happen to have a couple of homies, two of my homies from, from my hood 
are in this program. So I'm like, look, man, advocate for me. They're like, we'll do what we can, but it's all on you. Uh, so then I talked to my boss. I was like, hey, I was like, can you get me in this program? She's like, I'll put in a word for you. So it turns out I apply, I get the, get the program and I just kill it, man. I go in there and I take the welding like a duck to water, man. I just start laying beads, laying dimes. Um, I just liked it. You know, it's, it's engaging. Uh, you get to tinker with, you know, electricity and, and metal. It's just, it's just a good job. So I'm doing the program. I get to a point in the program where I'm confident and comfortable and that old attitude that I have kind of comes back, you know, I'm kind of like, um, forgetting my goals. And so I've got this attitude to where I know what I want to be, but I haven't actually like got there yet. You know, I know the type of person I want to be. I know, uh, the type of love I want to give, but in prison, you still have, you're surrounded by assholes, right? So, um, I'm still kind of have that chip on my shoulder, but at least I've like made a lot of um, inner growth to where I know and I can see the light. Um, about three quarters of the way through this program, uh, I say something to somebody and they turn it into this whole other thing and I get kicked out of the program. Um, I've got most of my credits, so I have the skills and everything I need to do to be a welder, but I didn't get all my credits. Um, they kicked me out of the program. They shipped me out of that prison, back to Two Rivers, back to the hole. Um, I get out of the hole. I get my ship together again. Um, eventually, I get shipped to uh, minimum again. And I get shipped to uh, a prison, like a camp, where there's no fence, none of that. Um, you know, nonviolent drug offender. So at this prison... Um, I walk in, it just smells like cigarettes. Everybody's smoking cigarettes. Mm, excuse me. And there's a, a lot of uh, free time. So I end up getting myself in trouble with tobacco. Uh, I get shipped back to uh, a maximum facility. And I finish my time there. So this is where it gets real. So I'm like a week from the gate. I've got, uh, excuse me, a month from the gate. Um, I've got my money saved. I saved like 3000 bucks. I'm ready to go. And the fires happened in Oregon. I don't know if you remember this a few years ago, but it was so bad. It looked like uh, Armageddon. Um, the sky was black at nine in the morning. It was like a red haze. It just looked like everything was on fire. And they evacuated our prison. Um, they evacuated us to OSP, which is the maximum facility here in Oregon. It's where all the bad guys are. They have death row there. Uh, and it wasn't just my prison. They evacuated all the prisons in the area. There was like three prisons they evacuated into this one prison. And if you can imagine a place where everybody hates each other to the point where they want to murder each other and they can't get to each other because they're at different prisons, now they're all in the same spot. So first meal, breakfast. Um, they started running it at 6am every time they popped the doors. It was like a hand grenade going off. It was a fucking riot, like a full scale, like prison riot, like th that I had never experienced before. And it took till six o'clock for them to pop our doors. And now they put me in a cell with a gang member, uh, from, uh, Mexican gang, uh, Southside. And he told me, he goes, Hey, homie, 
He goes, when they pop these doors, he goes, we're going to go out there and get these guys. So pack up all my stuff. I'm like, all right, man, I'll pack your shit up. So they pop our doors. He runs down the tier and he gets through the crash gate, but his two homies behind him didn't get through the crash gate. So they jump what's off. The, what's the crash gate? So when they have like a riot like that, they have a gate at the end of the tier. So they have like these doors and everybody comes out and walks down the, the tier. Right. And they have a crash gate at the end um, to where if something's going on. The police officer can shut the crash gate. Right. So nobody else gets out. Well, the two guys did, that didn't get through jumped off the rail down to this. We were on the second tier. They jumped down to the first tier. And so there were some guys down there sleeping on the floor. And uh, they had knives and they they were cutting this dude's face off, basically. I mean, without sugarcoating it. I was watching my celly and his friends cut this guy's face off. And so that happens at breakfast. And breakfast, like I said, didn't even get served till six. Because every time they open one tier, it's something. There's these guys killing these guys or these guys stabbing those dudes or these guys fighting. And it, it just took forever for them to clean it all up. So this went on for like three days <clears throat> and all this violence, just craziness. But one of the times I was walking to the chow hall during these three days, I see a name on a badge and it said Bazinski. Now I got my head on a swivel. This is a fucking riot. Like I, I need to know what's going on because I have problems with these dudes too. Now they see me in the chow hall. They're like, look, man, we got bigger fish to fry. I'm like, I bet you do. So I didn't have nothing to worry about, but it didn't mean I was on, uh, any less edge like uh, you know it's like a it, you just have to be on point you know got to know your surroundings you got to be self-aware at all times so I see this name Bazinski I think nothing of it <clears throat> uh, get back to my unit uh, in my prison you know life is normal I've got like three weeks left and this CO that I remember from the prison on the riot I asked him I said hey ma'am I said Bazinski I said are you are you related to any of the Bazinskis in this area and he shows me his arm. He's got tattoos all over his arms like I do. And it says, Alex, right here. And he goes, yeah, that was my brother. And it hit me, dude. Like, like you, like getting punched in the stomach. You know, this, this CO was the brother of the man who died in my case. And I'm standing there on this side of the, the bars. And he's on the other side of the bars. And we're toe-to-toe, man-to-man. And it's just dead silent. And I look up at him, I say, I said, I never knew your brother. And he goes, I know you didn't. And he starts telling me his version of how he went through this story with his brother and how his brother was in an addict and they tried to reach him, how they contacted their friends in the force and tried to get them to intervene. And they were like, look, unless he commits a crime, we can't do nothing. There's nothing we can do. And so the week that led up to his death, um, <clears throat> they had actually reached out to try to get his other dealer busted. Um, they said, look, unless we catch them in a crime, there's nothing we can do. So him and his other brother are police officers <clears throat> and they did everything they could for him. There was nothing they could do to prevent their brother from dying. If it wasn't me, it would be someone else. And when he told me that, it was almost like, of forgiveness without him saying, I forgive you. You know, he said, I deserved my sentence. He said it was fair. Um, I'd have to agree. 
nothing would have cured me other than a lengthy prison sentence. And I say that a lot because that judge was right. Um, it was, it was a weird moment, um, because it was so close to me getting out and it seemed like the universe had just opened up all the bullshit I've been doing, you know, the tobacco, the being mean to people in the welding program, all the things that I was still doing gone, washed away. (laughs) Sorry, my father-in-law sleeping on the couch. Um, so for the next three weeks, me and this correctional officer, we, um, we kind of developed a little relationship, you know, he's like, what's your first meal going to be, you know? And he's like, where are you going to live? You know, and what are you going to do? And are you going to work? What are you going to do for job and all these things? And he would ask me questions every time I saw him. And, uh, as honest as I can answer him, I would, I would tell him, you know, and, uh, it kind of became like something I looked forward to. I would look for him when I would go to the chow hall so I could say something to him, or I'd think of something witty and fun to clever to, to bring to the conversation. Um, I just enjoyed seeing him. I did. Uh, we became, you know, I guess close. We bonded a little, you know, and, and, and it's pretty rare for something like that to happen in our situation because it's like the cat and the mouse, you know, the cat and the mouse aren't friends, you know, it's just not the way it goes. And it just so happened that him and I developed a little bit of um, camaraderie. <clears throat> we, uh, I know he enjoyed talking with me as well. And he still sends me a message every now and again. Um, so yeah, so then I paroled and it was a mess. It was, it was wild. It was fucking wild. So I paroled in my mom's house. I didn't have nowhere else to go. And, um, my mom was sober for those two weeks that I was living with her. And then she wasn't. And so as soon as she got high, um, I'd met a girlfriend and she was pretty close with me. And I looked at her and my mom was in the apartment and she was high. And I was like, I can't do this. I was like, I fucking can't do this anymore. I was like, this is going to ruin me. I was like, can I live with you? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm fucking pack my shit. And I packed my shit in one load. I had like a box of a couple of things. And uh, I moved in with my girlfriend and got a job welding, you know, making 16 bucks an hour. And uh, just kept doing that. I hated it, but I kept doing it. It was a shit job. And uh, I just kept working. Uh, eventually found a better job. Uh, corporate, big corporation, $18 billion company. They hired me, you know, and I had to pass background checks. I didn't think they were going to hire me. And I was so scared. You know, they had these big fences around the place because it's like Facebook, Intel, Google, Tesla, you know, they have huge contractors, you know, Fortune 500 companies pay these people to build their stuff. So it's, you know, it's a big place and they have, you know, a lot of security. I didn't think they were going to hire me. I thought, no way they're going to hire a dude like me, fresh out of prison, been out like six months. Fuck, they, they're like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. We only go back three years. Like, well, you know, I was in prison for seven, so I'm good. They're like, yeah, you're hired, you know. So got that job and I fucking love that job, man. I wish I never left that job, but you know, uh another opportunity presented itself a year later. Um gotta gotta have my daughter, you know. I, I got her on a plane, shipped her out here, you know. I hadn't seen her in eleven years. Uh that was a huge mi- uh, milestone in my life you know, uh, redeveloping a relationship with my daughter who I hadn't seen in 11 years. Uh, Love on her. You know, she's doing great. She's got her own place in New Mexico. She's going to college. Um, Yeah. So I, I I rebuilt, start rebuilding relationships Um, on Thanksgiving. My first Thanksgiving out, I sent a message to my aunt and uncle, the one who raised me. 
And I said, hey, you know, this Thanksgiving, I'm really thankful for you guys. You guys loved me when no one else had to, um, when no one else would. And I'm just thankful that your guys' moral values still remain with me, even though I was a little shit when I lived with you guys. You guys taught me what was right and what was wrong. And I may not have gotten it then, but I get it now. And I just, I'm thankful for you guys. And so it took a little while. They reached out to me, you know, they kind of kept me at arm's distance. You know, they wanted to see me develop. They wanted to make sure that I um, meant what I said. And um, now they're a huge part of my life. I was just there Memorial weekend or not Memorial. I was there Memorial weekend, but, uh, or excuse me, uh, Labor Day weekend. I was there visiting. I was there last weekend visiting. They threw a big barbecue. Um, Memorial weekend coming up, they're actually throwing my wedding reception. So they've become a huge, huge stable part of my life. And, um, I love them for that. And, and they still love me. They just, you know, when you're, when you're an addict and you're stealing and you're living a gangster lifestyle, they can't be a part of that, you know? So they've accepted me back into their lives. Um, my wife's family, um, my father-in-law's here right now. He's asleep. He works graveyards, but, uh, he's, he's a big part of our lives. Um, he comes over a lot and stays with us. Uh, Wendy's mom, uh, Mother's Day, you know, we've got something going on for, for her family to, today. So I've found a way to have the family that I always dreamed I wanted, that I always had there, that I just didn't know how to access it because I had problems. I had so many problems that I hadn't dealt with. Anger issues, abuse issues, uh, self-hate, doubt you know, all these things that would just pile up and it was like a snowball and it just grew and grew and grew. And until I got out of the way of that snowball, it just kept running me over. You know what I mean? It just kept running me through the grinder. And without changing the way I saw the world, um, I wasn't going to change anything about my behaviors. Um, I had to like see the world through a different lens. I had to take off the shades. I had to take off the mask of the person I was trying to be and just be the person I enjoy. I would want to be around somebody I would enjoy having a conversation with or uh, having over for a barbecue. And when I became that person, I get invited to so many things. Now I don't have a lot of time. Um, I'm a union welder. Now uh, I'm in with a good union. I make decent money. I uh, just bought my first brand new car off the lot, 20 miles on it. Um, I, I have a good life. Uh, my credit's building. Um, I have a driver's license. I worry about insurance, like life insurance. Cause I work a dangerous job. You know, I, I have a normal lifestyle with a huge monkey on my back that I can't ever shake. I'm never going to shake it. I'm always going to have a criminal history. I'm never going to be able to work around money. I'm never going to be working around children. Um, these are things that I have to deal with, but it's less than it used to be. Now I have the tools to make money. Um, or before prison, I, I had no, no skills. I had nothing to help me through and navigate. All I had was you know, uh, my hand, I, I could be a laborer, you know, I could shovel dirt basically. Um, so prism saved my life. Um, and in a sense it saved a lot of other people's lives too, because I'm no longer di distributing poison to the people. Um, if that makes sense. Um, cause that's how I look at it now. It's poison, you know, it's, it's making people sick. It's killing people. And, um, you know, many, probably many people lost their lives over the course of my dealings. Um, but one in particular has to stick out because that's the one I went to prison for. And looking back on it now, all those COs knew exactly 
who my crime, wh- who, who my victim was. I had no clue. I didn't know because I didn't know who he was. I didn't know about him. Um, and I think I got looked out for maybe a little more in that sense because they wanted to see me succeed. They didn't want me to be a failure. They didn't want me out there doing the same thing to their kids or their brothers. And so I think maybe I got a little bit of slack on certain, certain things. And I think maybe they were harder on me for certain things. Um, but it literally saved my life. I hate using that word literally, but it did. It, it saved me. So, um, yeah, man, that's my story in a nutshell. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing. It's uh, some story you got there. Yeah. So one of the last things I ask everybody is, do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Yeah, I do. Um, don't let this be your last use because we all say that. This is the last time I'm going to get high. Tomorrow's Christmas. Tomorrow's Thanksgiving. Tomorrow's my birthday. Whatever it is. Don't get high. Just don't. It's that simple. Kick. Don't get high. Don't go to the methadone because that's just going to prolong you. Don't go to the Suboxone. That's just going to prolong your, your addictions. Just quit. If you can just quit, your life is going to get way worse (laughs) but after that once you get beyond that first month of kicking heroin or meth or whatever it is then you can get your mind right enough to start rebuilding your life and that's all it takes man it's just that first no just i'm gonna quit today just say no today and then work on the rest yeah no absolutely i agree with that i agree with that you gotta just work work your hardest so I guess that's all we got for today. Let's wrap this up. For okay. everyone watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, please click subscribe below. Also give us a like. Check us out on Reddit, Twitter, Instagram. I always tell people check out our Facebook group. If you go under the events tab, you'll have a link there for our nightly Zoom meetings. You just click on the link and it'll take you there. And that's all I have for today. So until next time.